Good morning. Happy fall. Oh, I hear some yays for that. I think most of yeah, and some clapping, some moves. I think we're all just tired of humidity more than heat, right? Some, someone said they like humidity. Wow. I don't know who that was. Uh, find me afterwards. I want to pray for you. <laughs> so now that we've had our first fall days in mid-October, um, I started thinking about traveling for the holidays because I'm realizing Thanksgiving isn't that far away and right after that will be Christmas. And many of you, you have family right here in Philly, but a lot of you, although Philly is your home, you have what you might call, in quotes, a hometown, a place where your family still lives or a place where you often go uh, to connect with your family on holidays. And so, of course, not to slight Philly, of course, but I want to know how many people are planning to travel home over the holidays. Let me hear you. A few boos, a few hands. Okay, all right. Um, okay, how many of that crew, let me hear you a little bit, it, uh, plan to drive with a significant other to that place? Okay, that's quite a few people. Great. I have some really bad news for you. I actually did a little reading on this and found out something that you might want to pay attention to if you're in a relationship, if you've ever been in a relationship, or someday you would like to be in a relationship. Apparently, riding in a car is the most likely place for couples to fight. <laughs> according, yes, according to a study that I read in an article uh, entitled Driving Each Other Crazy, it takes the average couple about 22 minutes to start fighting when driving in the car together. 22 minutes. Makes you want to take SEPTA or ride your bike or something else, right? Here are some of the most common arguments. Uh, the most common argument, 44% people of people report that they fight over directions or getting lost. You would probably expect that one, right? 37% argue over where to park. 34% argue over driving too quickly. 24% over driving too close to other cars. 20% over backseat driving. 20% over music slash radio choices. 17% aggressive driving. And 15% about taking corners too quickly. Oh, 15% about heat too high. And of course, along with that, 14% of people about it just being too cold in the car. Air conditioning, too, oh no, heat too high, air conditioning too low. So 20% of drivers claim, this is true, that they've actually pulled over and insisted their passenger exit their car. <laughs> That's one out of every five people. I've not done that yet. So... There, the next four people I talk to, one of them has done this, and I want to know who you are. Um, the Wall Street Journal tells someone did it today on the way in. Wow. Get out and walk. What about the kids? I don't care. <laughs> Wall Street Journal tells a story of Jim and Donna Harnish, real people. Things got so bad with them that when Donna wanted to make a comment about Jim's driving, she pulls out a finger puppet of a lamb named Arnella. Quote, she has saved our 45-year marriage. Mr. 
Mrs. Harnish, Ms. Harnish has actually given stuffed lambs to all three of her children, children's spouses at, as wedding presents. So Mr. Harnish agrees that the lamb ploy works. He says, quote, when I hear her whiny little voice, I just say to myself, I know what's going on. You don't have to say any more. Says a 67-year-old retired middle school vice principal, quote, who am I going to argue with? A little lamb on a finger? <laughs> it's not an SNL sketch, although it should be. That said, on several tense occasions, Arnella ended up as roadkill, apparently. <laughs> Arnella was the finger puppet, not the spouse. If you're listening close, but you might miss that. So the article goes on to give several other examples of travel companions that can't quite get along and finally concludes that the issue behind all of the fighting is really control. Namely, that literally only one person can be in the driver's seat at a time. And it says we hate not being in control. But in order to be happy... We have to learn to let it go. Control doesn't work in our lives outside of cars either. You know, last week we heard the story that Jesus told about the two most common approaches to faith and life and, and to finding happiness. And it's told in the story of these contrasting brothers, two sons. And one takes this pathway of self-discovery and pushes his father away. And he doesn't want to be dictated to by any type of higher authority. And the other uses the rules of the father as a way to try and manipulate his father to give him what he wants. And I think Jesus' point in telling the story was that neither of the brothers' approaches works. Both sons try and grab control from the father and both end up lost. So this week, though, we're going to talk less about being lost and more about finding our way home. See, see how it all connects to going home. See, see how what I did there? Is there a way that we can, thank you, thank you. Uh, uh, is there a way we can find our way home without being in the driver's seat? And in the process, I think you'll hear more about one of the reasons that I really love Jesus. And that's the name of this series, Why I Love Jesus. And that is that he gives us a picture of God as a parent that we all would want to go home to. And he goes to great lengths to make that picture of that God real and that God real and available to us. So we're going to read the same story we read last week, but we're going to look at different aspects of the story. This is Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided up his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you've never, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. All right. Before I go any further, I read this book called Prodigal God by Tim Keller, which so many ideas from that are in this sermon. I can't even figure out what might actually be my idea and what were his. So credit to him. So what we're going to talk about today is how do we find our way home? So last week we talked about the approaches that we can take to life that don't work, uh, that are common, but lead us to the same place. And it's not fulfilling. So how do we find our way back home where the party is, where life can be found? And to find our way home, I think we need a few things that we can see in this story. And the first is this, God's initiating love, meaning love that starts with him, not with us, but comes to us. So if you look and notice in this story, it's the father who initiates with both of his sons. So the younger son who runs off, when the father sees him, he runs to the younger son, puts his arms around him, hugs him, kisses him. Now you might say, yes, but the younger son is repenting of his evil ways. Maybe it starts with him. But the younger son, so the younger son does repent, but if you watch closely, his speech of repentance if you watch closely, his speech of repentance begins after his father's embrace. How would he have responded had he met his father and his father had a scowl or waited for him to make the slow walk up to him while the father sort of crossed his arms and looked down at him? But that's not the picture that Jesus paints of the father in the story who is clearly, I think, meant to represent God the Father. Notice it's not the repentance that causes the Father's love, but rather the reverse. The Father's love stimulates or encourages or evokes repentance. And the Father goes out after the older brother as well. So he pursues the self-righteous, bitter brother as well. In fact, the story is told by Jesus to a gathering of older brothers. They're called in this story uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Those are the people who know what to do and how to live and who are judging other people to make sure they're doing it the right way. So even as he tells this story, he is reaching out to the older brothers of his day. And one thing I think we can learn here is that even Godward turns in our lives are initiated not by us, 
but by God. It's his grace working in our hearts, calling us home. Even the thought in the younger brother's mind, oh, all those hired hands, they have a good place. Maybe my father would take me in again, even if not full status. There's something working in his heart. There's some grace happening. So if I'm lost and need to get home, if I'm stuck, am I stuck unless God reaches out to me? And I would say, well, sort of. But if you're thinking that way, you're missing the point. The point is, if you care, that's a good sign. If you sense you're lost, you're almost home. Really, if you begin to sense your lostness, your need, and you find yourself wanting to escape it, then you can realize that that desire is not something you could have generated on your own. It's a gift of grace. This kind of process requires help. And if it's happening, it's a good indication that even right now, God is at your side. Next, we need to find our way home. We need this, repentance that goes deeper. Now, I think we often think of repentance as coming to God with a list of all the things that we've done wrong and telling them how sorry we feel about each item on the list. That's the picture I got as a kid. When I was a little boy, every night before I went to sleep, I don't think anyone told me to do this, I would try and think of everything, every mistake or bad thing I'd done all day and ask for forgiveness. And I think when we see this story, the younger brother, that's what he's planning to do. He's got this whole speech planned out for when he meets his father. Now, I'm not saying repentance is, is, is less than that, but what I am saying is actually it's so much more. That's such a limiting picture. So the older brother in this story is just as lost as the younger one, yet he doesn't have this long list of sins to confess. He actually says of himself, I've never disobeyed you. His spiritual problem is actually the radical insecurity that comes from basing his self-image on achievements and performance. And the main barrier between the Pharisees and God is not their sins, but their damnable good works. You see, to find God, to find our way home, it's good, it's necessary to repent of things we've done wrong. But if that's all we do, we can find ourselves becoming like the older brother, living with a propped up sense of self-righteousness and looking down on everyone else who has a longer list than us. We need something deeper than that. There's not a lot of life there. It doesn't change us. It doesn't bring anything good into our lives. We need something else. It's good to repent of the things we've done wrong, but to truly follow Jesus is to repent of the messed up reasons we ever did anything right. I'm going to say that again. It's good to repent of these things. We've done wrong, sure. But to truly follow Jesus is to repent of the messed up reasons we ever did anything right. It's learning how to repent of the sin under all of our sins and under all of our righteousness. It's letting go of control and admitting that we've been seeking to get around God or get control of God and thereby we're placing our ultimate hope in ourself and not in our Father in heaven. So the antidote to being bad put it really simply, is not just being good. It's giving up control. That's the antidote. 
and following a GPS that speaks to us and leads us in our weakness. And that's what grace is. This is the way home. This is what the younger brother discovers. This is what the older brother hopefully will learn. You know, but it's also a counterintuitive, or it's the opposite of what you would think would be the way to live. And it asks from us faith. It asks us to believe that God really is like the Father in this story. That's what it's asking. And we all need help for this. To find our way home, we need a transforming view. What do I mean? This is a terrific story. I, this is one of my favorites. In, the, in, in all of my life, I think this story, it's often called the story of the prodigal son or the lost sons or the prodigal God. Sometimes people call it that. It's a terrific story, but I think there's something missing. And if you read the whole chapter 15, the stories that come right before this one are stories of lost things. So you have the lost sheep, you have the lost coin, and then you have the story of the lost sons. But there's one striking difference between our story today and the two stories that come before it. The two stories that come before this one, there's always someone who goes out and searches for what's lost. Someone's looking for a lost sheep. They've lost their coin. They're trying to find it. And I think by putting these stories together the way they are, we're being invited to ask the question, who should have gone out to the younger brother who left his father to live this crazy life, but broken life? Who should have gone out to him and said, this doesn't work, man. Come home. I think the elder brother should have done this. The younger son needed someone to come alongside him and say to him, dude, there is a better way than this. You are totally misunderstanding the father. You don't, that's, this is not going to help you. This is, you're off base here. Come home. See, the younger brother was wary of the father. He needed someone to come alongside of him. He needed a brother or a sister to encourage him. You don't need that speech. I promise you, you start heading back, as soon as he sees you, he's going to run to you. In fact, he's probably looking down the road, hoping you come around the corner any minute. But the elder brother won't go because he sees what it will cost him. He knows that the younger brother comes back, he's going to get another share of the inheritance. The inheritance that right now is all the older brothers. And he'd rather sit in judgment of his younger brother than pay the cost of bringing him home. It's easier, it's safer, it's cost-free. And he thinks, well, that's what the brother deserves. Let him, let him sit with the pigs. Let my younger Jewish brother sit with the pigs. You see, redemption always comes with a cost. All redemption comes through suffering. There's no redemption if there's not suffering, right? Redemption is the flipping of suffering on its ear, turning suffering into something good. You know, there's this foreign film called Three Seasons. It came out a few years ago. I'm not expecting that any of you necessarily saw it. But it's set in post-war Vietnam. And it's really several stories all weaved together, but there's one story that's about a gentleman named Hai. He's a cyclo rider or cyclo driver. Uh, cyclos are like um, bicycle rickshaws. 
And so he gives people rides on the back of his bicycle. It's about High and, and Lon, and she's a call girl. And High is in love with Lon. That's the background of the story. And Lon lives in, by day in this grinding sort of poverty, but works at night in this beautiful world of elegant hotels uh, where she's never allowed to actually spend the night. And she really wants to belong in what she sees as the normal world, that elegant world. So as the story goes on, what happens is, is High wins a cyclo race. And with that race, he gets some prize money. And so what he does is he books a fancy hotel room and pays Lon's fee. But instead of sex, he just wants to see her fall asleep and spend one night in this elegant world. So what happens is, once Lon figures out what's going on, she gets upset. She thinks that High is offering her such grace to control her. But as she realizes that he's using his power to serve her rather than use her, it begins to transform her. And by the end of the movie, she can't go back to the life she was living before. She changes. And I think this is what we need to see. There's another, if you think about this, there's another elder brother in this story. And he's one who does go after both lost brothers. It's the elder brother who's telling the story. It's Jesus. This is what the cross is. It's an act of selfless love, of cost. Jesus being stripped of his robe. Jesus being the outcast. Jesus drinking judgment. Jesus giving his life so that we could come home. So that through his sacrifice, we are welcomed into the party, older and younger brothers. But sometimes when it gets twisted, we hear that story and we feel guilty. All of a sudden, you know, anytime grace makes you feel guilty, something's wrong. Just stop. Something's not right here. Grace is supposed to lift guilt, not put it on your shoulders. Sometimes we hear the story, we feel guilty, like God's trying to gain an advantage over us. But nothing could be further from the truth. We're like Lan, thinking High is trying to control her, but he's not. He's trying to serve her. No strings attached. And this is what I hope we can see in the story. And in the story of Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection, redemption. This is what can, if we get a hold of it, help us trust the grace of God, rather than resist it. So it's hopefully selfless love destroys mistrust. If we believe it, if it impacts us, if it gets inside of us, selfless love destroys the mistrust in our heart towards God that makes us either younger brothers who want to get away or elder brothers that think we need to manipulate God to get the good things in life. And so to find our way home, we need a picture and a taste of home. You know, I think we can get a little skeptical about going home. Going home is often kind of a letdown over the holidays. You know, we're starting to make our plans right now. It reminds me of an article I read a few years ago by Dr. Markle, Markle, <laughs> Michael Hurd. That he writes to say why the holidays are so stressful for many. That's the title. 
And he says, the reason they're so stressful, and I didn't see this coming, is hope. He says, we put so much hope in the holidays. He says, we say, quote, it's my only chance to be happy all year long, so it's got to be pleasant. He goes on to say, this leads people, even ones who are not normally manipulative or imposing, to become this way in the desperate quest to squeeze at least a few days or weeks of happiness out of the whole year. How sad. So much pressure and often so much letdown. I think this is part of the reason the picture that Jesus gives of a, is of a going home. Oh, sorry, let me say that again. I think that's part of the reason the picture that Jesus gives of going home is a party. He knows we're cynical. <laughs> so he makes the point that the party is really good. We need that picture. But he's also honest with us. He gives us realistic expectation. He talks about an ultimate party that's coming where everything is renewed. It's the, it's the ultimate blowout that never ends. But in this story, he gives a picture of this fantastic party that's in the middle of the real world. So it says, you remember this? This little detail that there was a famine. So what that means is when the party's over, there'll be difficult things to deal with in life. People to help, things to overcome. But along the way, like we see in this story, there will be tastes of this ultimate party. The party that's coming that won't disappoint us. Where the big deal fatted calf is experienced here and now as a down payment on what's ultimately in store. We need that. We need moments in our lives where we taste what can be good, what works, what's redeemed, what's being transformed. Following Jesus definitely has elements of sacrifice. And when we're sacrificing, we need to know that what's ultimately coming is amazing. And so we need tastes of that. We need some sweet tastes to believe that more sweet tastes are just around the corner. And that is faith. That is living by grace. This is the GPS that can lead us home. This is seeing a picture of God that draws us in, that motivates us with selfless love, that warrants trust, that sends us, compels us to go out to folks who are living in pigsties. Not to judge or condemn, but to serve out of a knowledge that we're all lost. But there's a party going on right now that we get to taste. And when it really gets going, it'll never end. Let's pray. And while I do, if you're on the band, if you could go ahead and make your way forward. So, Jesus, what I want to pray is that this morning we could get a taste. Even as we turn our focus to you, we show up here hoping to connect, hoping that we can transcend our everyday lives and experience something divine, your presence. As we sing our songs to you, may it be, may your presence come and fill this place. We need a taste. We need a touch. We need hope. We need to enjoy life. This needs to be a space that is fun and engaging and hopeful.
Father, we don't bury our heads in the sand, but we welcome your presence to give us the grace that we need to have hope that won't disappoint. Amen. So what I want to do right now, I'd like to have a moment of silence where we just sort of turn our hearts towards Jesus. Uh, just as a prayer. And it'll also give me a chance to go over and get set up too. But it's also important to remember the opportunity that's before us. So I'd like you all to stand. Um, when we get going too, you'll notice during the first song, uh, we'll be receiving our offering. Don't be distracted by that. That's actually a way to continue your worship through generosity. So... Um, if you're a regular member here, this is your chance to support what we're doing. For all of us, it's a chance to engage and connect and to worship God. Um, you can also give online. There's a link behind me and a link mentioned in your bulletin that's easier for a lot of people. Um, as that comes by, just drop your connect cards in there too. But right now, I want you to just take a moment and I want you to take a deep breath. That is more than a breath. It, breath is good, but it's, a, it's an invitation uh, for the breath of God, the Holy Spirit, to come and be with us. So let's take one big deep breath. Let's do one more. And one more. So what I'd like you to do now, I'd like you to just keep breathing naturally. Let every breath in be an invitation to the Holy Spirit. And every breath out, I want you to pray. I want you to pray what's ever on your heart, whatever you brought in with you, whatever is important to you. The prayer can just be another invitation or it can be a point where you, of need where you want to connect to God. So that as we come into worship, we're bringing our whole selves with anticipation of the presence of God. Take this time. Breathe. Welcome. Pray.